0: Howdy and welcome to this episode of Latent Night, which is historic and important for this reason that it is the very first latentless episode of Latent Night with Brian Wecht, just making it night with Brian Wecht. I had some stuff that I had to take care of this week. So I was not around for the lovely conversation that Brian had with our guest. But I guarantee it's fun and that you'll enjoy it. So, in my stead, thought, you know, I would tide you over until next week with a little bit of just, you know, some typical latent stuff. So, Here you go. I think I ate two bags of crunchy Cheetos last night after my sleeping meds kicked in, but who knows? I just wake up to the detritus of the snack rampage I've gone on from the night before. So I read 1984 for the first time yesterday. Like, I think the thing that stands out the most to me is that when there's a man strapped to a table and there's another man taunting and torturing him, that's erotic. Brian, this bit sucks. Mechanical keyboards. VHS tapes. Fuck.
1: How old is your your kid... Uh, we have two of them. One of them, the oldest one, is almost three. Um, our son, and the
2: youngest is four months old, which is oh my god! Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> Why is that the reaction we always get with that? <laughs> because people who have been through it know what it's like to have a four month. I mean, you've been through it too well, once before, but you know, I have a, a six year old, and it's like four months is like in it.
1: Yeah, I feel like if, if this is World War One, like I'm in the trench covered in mud. <laughs> kind of like hunting for rats to for dinner right now,
2: yeah, so you guys gave birth during corona,
1: yeah. Um, unlike a lot of babies that will show up around Christmas time, right. uh, didn't, <laughs> didn't didn't make the baby during corona, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it was not exactly the way that we planned it. Um, of course, you, yeah, you know, I'm realistic to know enough to know you can't exactly plan your perfect delivery. Um, right but it, nobody would have planned it
2: this way well i'll just say it was it awful um or was it like pretty manageable i gotta say it was
1: kind of amazing um so anybody's been through this you know in like a hospital environment will know what i'm talking about yeah um you're there you know depending on how the delivery goes for a couple of days in the recovery room and everything and then you know it's like the worst hotel room you've ever been in in your life mm-hmm. and <laughs> It's just like, it's so loud and disruptive, because not only do you have this creature who's like a a noisy, wet potato who doesn't know how to rest, and it's just like, you're fried, mom's fried, everything is already at the height of stress, and you're so tired. And then there's so much noise, because nurses are coming in and out, and doctors are coming in and out, and everybody in the hallway is visiting their people. And during COVID, the hospital was so quiet because no one was allowed inside (laughs) except for us. I was like, this is great. Can we stay here for like a week? It
2: would be amazing. When my daughter was born, she was born in England and it was just, you know, it was our first kid, first and only kid. Uh, And I was, I guess I was expecting them to like take the baby during the night to, I don't know, give everybody a break and go chill out. But I guess, that certainly that option never seemed remotely on the table, and I'm glad it wasn't, because we wanted, the, you know, daughter in, in our room. But still, that that meant that people had to like come in, kind of all the time, just to like check on stuff. Well, I'm trying to determine if it would be more restful or, or less stressful. It sounds like it was more so for you guys to not have people coming in all the time.
1: It, honestly, yeah, it was it was kind of um, considering how like anxious you are going to a pregnancy in and COVID. And this was in April, like in the height yeah. of it.
2: And you guys are, where Where are you based, Austin?
1: Austin, Texas, yeah. Yeah. Um, And luckily this hospital had their, I mean, they had it together, 10 out of 10. Um, That's awesome. You know, the the babies were like locked off from the world. I mean, NASA should study the the lockdown (laughs) procedures there, like the airlock they created for keeping that maternity ward safe. Did you wear a mask like during birth? Yeah, we did during birth. Then they came right off. The doctors were wearing masks, but they always do that.
2: No, right. <laughs> so this is something I was I was thinking about a lot. Let's go back to the first kid. Did you read a lot about, you know, like the classic, like, what to expect when you're expecting kind of stuff? Uh, or, or was it like, you know, about like what to, you know, what was going on? Um, uh, or, or was it kind of just like, well, we'll do the basic, like, kind of prep, but not go much beyond that. Because I'm always curious how scientists approach, you know, Birth,
1: yeah, so this was a situation where I knew that that old saying would come into play where everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right <laughs> only here the the baby is the punch, yeah, but I also like I'm a nerd, and I prepare for everything, and I research yes. everything that I do in my life if I'm gonna buy a new lawnmower, like that's like a week of work to see what's going on there, yeah and so of course I read like everything I could um, cuz you're cuz you also have to dig through this ocean of woo and right like a mess of of just garbage information to try to find the good information like case in point I'm not going to name the website cuz that would be mean but one of the biggest baby websites out there it has baby in the name
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: You go and you Google a question about your your little infant, and this is like you know they're they're like magicians of, of SEO, and they've yeah they always get the first three results. Well, fine, it's like other parents answering questions there. Sometimes somebody claims to be a pediatrician, but the whole thing is owned by Johnson and Johnson, which is the people who are selling me baby shampoo. Of course, yeah. And So I can't trust anything I read there now because Big Baby Shampoo is the one putting the information online. Yeah. So you have to wade through dozens of this, uh, of places like this.
2: Absolutely true. And even in, so we took, you know, like pre-birth classes at our local hospital in London and the, the people teaching the classes were like very clearly recommending bullshit, like not all the time, but it was like, you know, here's this like magnetic pad and that you can, you know, put on to ease contractions or whatever. I'm not going to say that's 100% obviously wrong, but it's pretty obviously wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I know enough about woo and bullshit to know that magnetic bullshit is a thing unto itself. And, and, and you know, most people in the class, of course, are, are not well-informed and fairly credulous. So they were like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll get some magnetic pads. I was really, really shocked by not the fact that there is pregnancy bullshit out there. Of course, there's going to be. There's everything bullshit. But that the people teaching this class were very clearly promoting it.
1: It's really weird because we were in a group class like that. And you're in that situation where I don't really know these people. If you've had that interaction before where you're sitting there and your head screaming like you want to grab them and go, (laughs) you're wasting your money. What are you doing? Just listen to the doctors and stop it. Take that copper bracelet off. It's not going to help you balance. (laughs) But then you end up just nodding and going, Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, having a baby is just such an adventure. Who knows what you might want to try? And then, you know, I'm kicking myself all the way home because these people lost 50 bucks in a magnet blanket.
2: Yeah, totally. The other thing, you know, it's like when you're a scientist long enough, like, or not not even that long enough, the thing that's drilled into you as you do more and more science, so I don't know if you know my background at all. I'm a physicist by training. You know, it was drilled into me pretty early on that, you basically don't know shit about shit. Like, you you know, there's just this huge ocean of things you don't understand. And the battle that I always struggle with is, you know, b- basically like, oh, this might just be a thing I'm ignorant of. You know, yeah, I have a PhD in theoretical physics, but maybe there's some magnetic thing out there that, you know, is actually efficacious or whatever, and maybe it works. You know, I want to give it sort of the benefit of the doubt to to, to begin with, but the warring impulse is, no, obviously it's bullshit. Like it's it's 99% chance it's complete crap. So I personally struggle with the, you know, wanting to have an open mind about things, but also, you know, trying to call out bullshit wherever it's kind of obviously there.
1: Yeah, I've kind of a problem with the placebo effect too, because... Totally. So like a magnetic blanket might make you feel really good and lead down, you know... The, the domino effect happens and something great ends up happening in your body through the magic and power of the placebo effect.
2: Yeah, which is a very
1: real thing, right? Totally. Just indisputably real. And so I sit there and you're like, well, maybe this could be good for them. And I don't want to be like prescribing the placebo effect to people. And I'm, I'm not a medical ethicist or anything like that. Right. But I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. But I think about I would totally if, if taking a bigger pill made my headache go away faster because my brain's tricking me, bring it on.
2: Yeah. Totally. Then I mean, that's the craziest thing. I mean, as you as you well know, I mean you basically just said it, right? Basically the how dramatic the intervention is increases the size of the effect is such a mind fuck that I I really can't wrap my head around that.
1: Oh, there's so many crazy examples of it too. Yeah. They've done surgery on people with fake machines and they wake up feeling better having nothing done to them, but because there was beeps and complicated stuff around them when they went to sleep, that their brain tricks them into feeling better. It's absolutely wild. I mean, even the color of a pill can affect... Right. The brain tricks your body into having the effect. Like if it's supposed to be a stimulant or you know a sedative, red or blue can make a difference.
2: Totally, yeah. It's absolutely wild. That, that one, I hadn't heard the fake machines one. The color of the pill one, I remember... Well, you can fact check it if you want. I'm like pretty sure that's a thing. It's totally plausible, right? Like completely plausible. It, when that one where they, they were like under, they, and so that was subconscious. There's placebo
1: surgical experiments that have been done to play with people's expectations of waking up, and it, it's absolutely wild.
2: That's crazy.
1: But the, you know, the knock on effect of this, and this is where I started to get more worried and take it more seriously, is the people who are might be more likely to to do those things or believe those things or take any intervention that's shown to them by any snake oil salesman that walks through the the birthing class is what happens after their kid's born. Like, what are they going to do or not do when it comes to health and, are they, and, and well-being of their child? Like, are they going to get vaccines? Yeah. Because there's no placebo effect for vaccines. Like, they just don't work that
2: way. <laughs> no, right. Yeah, no, I think about that all the time, too. You know, and it's well... Known at this point that you know the the deficit model is not correct, right? Would you say that? Do you agree with that? I would
1: absolutely say that. You're going to yeah. go deep into the the psychom jargon here.
2: Well, so I just realized that probably our <laughs> listeners who are not general psychom people are uh, I have no idea what that means. So basically, the deficit effect for those of you who don't know is the idea that people don't let's just say, don't believe stuff, because they don't know better, they don't know the facts, and if we teach them the facts, you know, if we just educate them, then they'll change their minds about whatever it is, climate change, anti-vax, you know, anything like that. And this has been, I would say was the leading hypothesis in SciComm for, I don't know, whatever, until like 10 years ago or something like that, maybe earlier, but at least through, let's say, through the early 2000s, seemed to be the approach that most people had. And it it is just obviously true now. that Many, many studies have been done that show that just educating people does not actually change their mind. I mean, you might get a couple, of course, but that's generally not the way people work. Would you say that's a fair summary?
1: It's a totally fair assessment. I put it more simply that, you know, we wish that we could sort of beat the stupid out of people with the knowledge (laughs) stick. (laughs) But it doesn't work that way. I mean, there's there's always somebody who's experiencing the information for the first time. So in that respect, like if it's their first time experiencing the knowledge, like get the good knowledge in front of them and, and then you can be your, their, first, yeah, for sure. their first experience with that. But if they have previous experiences, if they have all these other parts of their identity that are yanking on them, you know, me, some nerd on the internet coming and telling them they're wrong, Surprisingly ineffective sometimes.
2: Yeah, right. It's not shocking when you just think about how humans react to stuff, right? Like it's pretty obvious that some random person you don't know is not going to change your mind based on you know hectoring you in a probably public forum. But I guess it is changing. But a bunch of people still seem to think that oh, that's the way it works. Uh, actually, I actually haven't talked about this much on the podcast. You might know it. So I co-founded the Story Collider. Do you know that the Story Collider?
1: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember talking to your co-conspirator, uh, Ben Lilly. Yeah, walking down the street in San Francisco one summer that I was working there, and he's like, "I've got this idea for a,
2: this live <laughs> science storytelling show. I don't know what to do with it." I wonder when that was. So, because you know, we started it in 2010.
1: Oh, so I guess it had started by that time. He was asking me how to put it on YouTube because apparently I'm supposed to know something about
2: that. <laughs> yeah. So we we had started doing, you know, basement shows in New York around then. And yeah, and they, you know, it was like, you know, what do we do with it from there? So in fact, I believe. So this is how not that we ever met in person, but I was introduced to you by Liz Neely, who I don't know what your connection is to. So I was at South by And she was like, oh, my friend Joe's there. You guys should try to connect. And it didn't work out. I
1: remember that not working out, yeah.
2: Yes, okay. So Liz is the best. Like, she's just a a wonderful, awesome genius. And I just love her. I think she's amazing.
1: Yeah, one of these, like, few universally loved people on Earth. Like, yeah, Liz, if you're listening, this is how people (laughs) think of you.
2: It is really true. And not only is she universally loved, she's amazing at what she does. Uh, Has has it just been great for the Story Collider? So actually, I haven't been involved with Story Collider for several years now uh, just because of time stuff. But Liz, we brought her on as executive director when I was there. Actually, she is just leaving, I think, in a few weeks to move on to I don't know what yet. But she's been there for, I guess, it's probably five, six years now and is now moving along. But she's just been wonderful for... For that organization,
1: like learning that the deficit model and all of these other assumptions of how people can make other people know better things were not exactly right for a hundred years or more yeah, has shaken it up, right? And when you shake things up, you make people get creative to find new solutions. and like we used to draw pictures on cave walls to tell people how to do stuff. and so it shouldn't be really surprising that stories and doing narratives and trying to get in touch with people's emotions at the same time as their as their knowledge works maybe right. we could have listened to tens of thousands of years of precedent on that
2: yeah totally so in case people again may not know what the story collider is it is it is exactly that. it's narrative science so it's not educational it's like personal stories about it so that was the whole conceit is like humanize it make it emotional rather than kind of educational and do it in the, you know, like a moth-style storytelling vibe. So that was like our, our very explicit goal from, from the start was to tell true stories about science, but not from a, hey, let's educate people kind of tone. Would you call yourself an educator? An educator I'm
1: comfortable with. I don't call myself a teacher because I know real teachers. Right. <laughs> and they do a way harder job than what I have to do. But I'm, a, I'm an educator. Do you
2: use that kind of narrative model a lot in, in what you do?
1: I mean, absolutely. I absolutely use this. So, I mean, I make YouTube videos for a living. Right. And other science journalism and science storytelling and things like that. But, like, a main piece is the YouTube uh, game there. Yeah. And, yeah, I I want people to learn things through my YouTube videos. But there's different strategies for that. I mean, I'm not trying to necessarily make them pass their next chemistry test. I'm trying to make them smarter humans that can exist more richly in the universe. And make good decisions based on true things. That's my goal. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, stories work. Like when people laugh, they're engaged, they're enjoying their time, they're not hating what they're learning. When people hear a story, they can reflect and they can identify with the characters. They can see how all of these things, these big heavy things, sometimes in science, like you're talking about, you know, quantum mechanics or you know, the, the deep epigenetics or something like this. Like these are real heavy things. And if they're just hanging by the one scientific string, it's pretty hard for people to handle in their brain. For sure. But if you can tie them to all the other things in the world, like history and art or music or weird people in history who have done crazy shit, then it it just adds other strings to help support that thing. And I think it makes people, you know, literally tie themselves to it tighter and it helps it resonate more and it helps it stick with them.
2: Yeah. 100%. Like, for example, I remember a lot of physics from my college physics classes, but I couldn't tell you like specifically how various things were taught, you know, or the moment I learned them. But I sure as hell remember very specific stories I heard about Schrodinger, or Einstein, or whatever, like the the people when the when the instructor would take a break from lecturing to be like, and here's a fun story about Schrodinger. The one I remember about Schrodinger, and I have no idea. Actually, I haven't fact checked this. So
1: those are the best <laughs> stories. So go with it.
2: Yeah, basically, he has this idea for for quantum mechanics, and he's talking to whoever it was at the time. I honestly can't remember his cat. He was talking to his yeah cat. his his cat. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. He's given some talk, and everyone says, uh, "Well, Irvin." You know, this is great, but what you need is an equation. And he goes, oh, I I guess so. So he goes off for the weekend. He, like, shacks up with his mistress in a cabin somewhere and comes up with the Schrodinger equation, you know, during that, uh, like, affair in a cabin in the woods over some weekend. So that is the story as I remember it. If I brought my work
1: on a vacation like that with my wife, I'd be in big trouble. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine? Irvin, how did you get that done?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, And I just remember all these little other little humanizing details about all these figures. Those have really stood out to me.
1: I mean, sometimes what we learn about these folks totally ruins them, but like that's fine. Oh,
2: no better example now than... I mean, there, there probably are better examples, but the one that really sticks in my mind is Feynman, who by all accounts was a misogynist creep yeah and you know certainly a preeminent physicist and architect of quantum field theory and and many many important ideas but seems to have been you know beloved by many but also kind of a bad guy in in other ways especially when it came to his treatment of women so that's the one that as a particle physicist always stands out to me is this guy who, you know, wrote endless books kind of self-mythologizing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. About you know all these funny stories about he's at Caltech and he's hiding the doors or whatever, or maybe that was MIT. And, you know, I think I remember even in high school reading Shirley or Joking, Mr. Feynman and being like, uh, he seems to really like himself. And now knowing what we know is he's really not not the best dude.
1: No, he really isn't. So for me, the person who got ruined was James Watson. Oh, um, And there's yeah. a pattern here. It's like people who got to write their own scientific mythology <laughs> yes, totally. shockingly left out a few of the important details. Yeah, or people, even. Yeah, <laughs> people. In, yes, entire people were, were left out of the equation in the case of Rosalind Franklin. Exactly, yeah. I'm on Team Franklin, just to publicly put <laughs> that out there on the record, so it's somewhere in the knowledge base of humanity. Good choice, yeah. So I, threw. I can't even remember what now, found a letter with the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco letterhead. It's written on like one of those you know, hotel room stationery. Um, it's a letter from Richard Feynman.
2: Fancy hotel at the top of the hill, the Fairmont. I remember passing by it. Lots of flags. It's beautiful. Yeah.
1: It, it overlooks all the poor people in, in San Francisco, which is a whole other thing. 100% does, yes. So the letter is signed glycine which is an amino acid, which we can get back to in a minute if you want to know the history of that. But uh, it is addressed to, um, or I should say glycine is Richard Feynman. It is addressed to one Jim Watson. Uh-oh. Um, so Richard Feynman is on his honeymoon. I don't know which marriage. I don't know how many times he tried it, but um, he is talking about giving a lecture to the biology department uh, at wherever James Watson was. And just, I quote, I would like to try to do experiments with you and the bevy of beautiful lab girls.
2: Oh, oh, gross! Come on, he's on oh. his
1: honeymoon, writing to no none other than James Watson <laughs> to talk about experiments yeah. and the bevy of beautiful lab girls. Like I just, this is when the floor fell out underneath Richard Feynman in my respect as a human.
2: So creepy and awful. Yeah, gross. So what I remember about Watson is just straight up racist, right? Mm-hmm. Among other things.
1: That, I mean, that, that is, that is um, pretty accurate, yeah. He got away with it for a little while in that the old grandpa excuse of like, he's from a different time. But we know that that is not, like, that's still racist.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it does not, being old does not excuse bad behavior. Especially since much of his bad behavior was when he was old. <laughs> uh, is he still alive? He, he
1: is. Through his own hand and you know society waking up and being aware of of some of his ideas, he's he's put himself in time out for the rest of his his life. It's unfortunate because these people wrote their own mythology, like we said, right? And and they could have written a completely different story for their life through different choices and have done such amazing things for the world. And everyone has the opportunity to have your amazing works line up with being an amazing person. These people chose poorly. They were
2: humans. And I remember I read The Double Helix in high school. I read both of the Feynman books. There might be another one now, like the, the Shirley You're Joking and what was the other one? What do you care what other people think? I remember being given those in high school to read for bio and math classes. You know, like With math, it was like a fun thing, but with biology, it was so straight up like summer reading book. So this was, as I'm sure was not uh, unusual. You know, I'm sure this was assigned to high school and college and whatever classes You know, constantly
1: well they're full of those 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 questions that are the things that spark young scientists who're just like how does a rubber band work like what is an atom when you think right. about it how small is it like these are the questions that YouTubers go crazy with and make our careers on 100% why does a mirror work you know these these things that you know maybe aren't going to be behind the working of a particle collider but are definitely going to make me pause when I'm brushing my teeth for 10 minutes as I question the, my existence in space time.
2: Yeah. Well, I remember one from the Feynman book where he was like he was kind of uh, kind of stuck in a rut scientifically and was in the cafeteria and was just like, "Hey, I wonder how you know like plates are wobbling. Let me figure out the physics of wobbling plates." And mm-hmm. then that kind of, you know, just toying around with classical mechanics turned into some interesting thing for particle physics. Uh, you know, whatever, months or even possibly even years later. So that idea of, you know, just like playing around with stuff was a very positive lesson I took from that Feynman book and as a, an academic particle physicist was actually how a lot of research started for me. It was just like, uh, hey, that seems, I mean, maybe not about plates, but, you know, that seems weird. Let Let's like try that out and see what, if anything, happens. With string theory, which is what I really focused on, Uh, It was like, hey, this is some cool math thing. Let me think about this math thing that seems relevant to something. And then you kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole and something may or may not happen, but sometimes does.
1: I mean, what few people know is that Feynman diagrams are actually stick figures of a person spinning
2: plates. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's how he he came up with it. Uh, This is probably a good time to introduce ourselves since we're uh, half an hour in. (laughs) Who are are, you again? Yeah. Uh, So everybody, this is uh, Late Night with Brian Wecht, and uh, my name is Brian Wecht. Uh, Unfortunately, Layton could not be here today. She had a a family emergency to deal with at the last minute. Uh, So this is our first ever Late Night uh, solo episode. I'm sure there'll be more in the future. But we are very excited to have a special mystery guest. So mystery guest, would you care, half an hour in, to introduce yourself?
1: My name is Joe Hansen. You might know me from YouTube, or you might not. I have no idea what your online habits are. Um, I make a show for PBS called It's Okay to Be Smart, where you can learn things and laugh at my dad jokes. Uh, <laughs> I also have a little climate change show called Hot Mess. Yeah. And then I write about science everywhere I can, whenever I have
2: time, which is increasingly less these days with two children, but I'm, I'm working on it. Cool. Well, dude, uh, thank you so much for being here and and doing this. I think you are the second science communicator we've actually had on the show. So it's it's awesome to to have you here. Is that all? I mean, there's there's so many of us. It's an honor. Why wasn't I first, Brian? That's what I really. (laughs) You know, that is a good question. I'll I'll talk to Jane Deville about that, and you guys can fight. You know, there's so many great people doing science and science youtube as you know because you're you know that's that's a big thing for you like it's it's just such an amazing ecosystem of people in every area of science doing awesome stuff that is so impressive to me how how good so much of it is
1: and it is an ecosystem that's a very good way to put it i am i am a biologist by the way i don't just put doctor in front of my name for the hell of it <laughs> i did go to school for a very long time to be a a PhD of biology and ecosystem is accurate because this YouTube world, well, you know, we we all know each other in a sense. I mean, it's, it's not that big and and it is so collaborative and, and mostly friendly and a place where the interactions and support and co inspiration and sort of behind the scenes um, mentorship that goes on has created Something that, I, I, if you would have told people ten years ago that would exist, uh, you know, this network of, of information sharing that can reach the billions of people that it does, it's it's mind-boggling. I'm I'm just very happy to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, it's it, the the collaboration thing is really interesting to me too, because I feel like that is generally true amongst YouTubers. You know, my YouTube career is now almost entirely music videos, but also there's a significant gaming portion of it. In fact, most of the people we've had on this show have been gamers. And I also find that like really fun, collaborative, youtube kind of spirit to be almost omnipresent amongst other people in, in gaming. It's a really, really fun place to be. And most people, if you just reach out and you're like, hey, do you want to do this thing? You know, maybe not. People aren't always available, but people are always friendly about it and kind of happy to work together. It's, it's, it's a really fun place to be.
1: It is. I mean, if you scoop me on an idea that I'm going to hate you and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, light candles in my um, YouTube (laughs) voodoo shrine uh, for demonetization
2: in your honor. Of course. No, then you copyright strike them immediately. Absolutely. But as long as that doesn't happen, yeah. Have you been scooped on a YouTube video?
1: Oh, I've been oh scooped all the time. Yeah, there's this crazy phenomenon that happens, uh, and I've definitely been scooped, and it is the worst feeling in the world because you've you dedicated oh, so much time dude. and energy into figuring something out and and putting it into your own words and creating something you think is an original idea, and then like three days before you put it out, another YouTuber puts up a video about the same thing. And not only do you not get to maybe put that video out, which you know that that sucks, but yeah. Then you realize, oh, you know what? Maybe my ideas aren't that original after all. Maybe I don't have any good ideas. (laughs) You know what? Why am I even doing this with my life? Like, I'm just gonna shut it all down and go live in a cave. Yeah. So a few weeks after that happens, you crawl out of your your hole. You get used to that and uh, and you realize that that's how knowledge works and that's how ideas have always worked and um, original ideas are rare if they exist at all.
2: Were you uh, ever scooped academically? Oh, by the way, in case because this is again jargon, I think most people know this, but just in case not, scooped it means someone basically publishes or puts out, in the case of a YouTube video, the thing you were going to do before you have a chance to do it. That's what we're talking about.
1: Unless you work in the cutthroat industry of frozen confectionaries, and that means somebody <laughs> came up with a flavor of ice cream before yeah. you, which is totally different. Yeah. Academically, I absolutely have been scooped, and this is this is a story. Oh, I want to okay. It's like a career scoop. Okay. This is like one of the influences that got me into science education and science writing. Okay. Oh, now, I, I, okay. I really want to hear this. Okay. So if you were to go on Google Scholar and look up my extensive publication record, you would find a very short list of me as like a middle author on something because, you know, it just doesn't work out for everybody in grad school. The projects just aren't there. I mean, that's what yep. PhD programs are for. It's a, whole, it's a whole other thing, they're to get you ready for the real stuff.
2: In your field, like it's by kind of importance on paper. Is that how author listing works? The boss goes last,
1: the important people
2: come first, and everybody else gets stuck in the middle. In my field, it was always alphabetical. Like, that's it. With one, maybe, one, literally one paper I can ever think of, which was a very special case. Authorship is all alphabetical and has nothing to do, like reflects seniority or, you know, driving force in no way at all. Just tries to be very egalitarian.
1: That's a much better way to do it. I agree. In the places where you have this author ordership, you create Game of Thrones level oh politics and subterfuge to get things done. I mean, talk about scooping. People are actively sabotaging others sometimes in order to, oh. to to save their own skin because, you know, your currency is the number of those authorships that you can get. I mean, it's a completely twisted system and it'll fix itself when a few more generations of old scientists yeah. retire or totally. go to room temperature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, okay. So I'm, I'm in grad school and uh, I, my background is in molecular biology and genetics. And my lab worked on a genetic engineering potential technology. And spoiler, it's not any of the ones you've heard of. <laughs> because we're sitting there working on something that works really well in like all the simple model systems like bacteria. And then you get into work in yeast and you're working your way up the ladder and you're like, we're going to do stem cells. We're going to change the world. This is going to be the, the dream technology. We're all going to be on patents. I'm going to have a science Ferrari. These are the dreams that are going through your head. And I remember the day that the first paper about CRISPR came out because it mm-hmm. didn't come out from my lab it came out from another lab that we'd worked with. And it was very similar kind of academic interests. And Mm -hmm. and me and my lab mates just sat there at the paper, just like looking at it, like with a thousand yard stare, like, oh my God.
2: And can you just say real quick for people, uh, what is CRISPR?
1: Oh, CRISPR is a precision genetic engineering technology that you can use to sort of program where it goes and makes little slices in DNA. And you can use that to to edit DNA potentially.
2: Real hot shit right it's now. It's real hot shit, yeah. It's like everything right now. Yeah, sorry, please continue.
1: So we remember that day when that came out because a big part of my PhD work was trying to make this genetic engineering technology that we were working on work in like human cells and in stem cells of mice and stuff that would eventually be able to use like cure diseases, grow new body parts, like, uh, you know, a genetic engineering for whatever you can think of it in complicated organisms because bacteria are fine we want to keep playing with them but we wanted to do the hot shit and so we yeah. got scooped i'm um, in the, in this world by CRISPR. and that day oh man uh, it was one of those rocket missions where it just comes tumbling right back down to the pad
2: so you did you know the paper was coming out before it was published or was like someone you know emailed you know a link to everybody and was like guys check it you know what what was that process like
1: I had an alert set up for certain topics like you can go on the 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 academic you know paper search engines and so I'm following my topics and doing my Monday afternoon coffee browsing and it showed up in in nature science or one of the one of the big journals and um, yeah, it was really clear i mean it was it was three pages of of yeah. bad news and we, like, we we all just everybody <laughs> oh. had it printed out and like came and dropped their own version of it like oh. Oh, brutal.
2: And that's when you were in grad school at the time.
1: Right. Yeah. I was just still working on my PhD at that time. And you look at that universe and I, I looked at my chances <laughs> of getting good papers and the big journals that it would take to be a professor. And I decided to start working on the other things that, that brought me joy and uh, that, that I was already at that time playing around science communication. And uh, I really started to put, put a lot of
2: energy into it then. So that really was like one of the inciting incidents towards a non-academic career, towards the science communication stuff. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I didn't want to,
1: you know, I'm I'm a realist and very pragmatic person and I didn't I really didn't didn't want to wake up at 40 on my third postdoc and and realize that I was not going to get a professorship and have to sort of start life at age 40. And um it's an amazing and difficult and wonderful thing that people who go through that do and it's is like, in no way is to like like talk shit about people who choose that path. It's just when I saw the writing on the wall about how this was going to play out, um, I did see this opportunity because the work I was doing in science communication on the internet, back when the internet was a pure and beautiful place, uh, <laughs> I was like, you know what, there is yeah. something here. Like I couldn't quite figure out what it was, was going to become. Yeah, yeah. But it was new and it was weird and it was novel. And people were paying attention to something I was doing. And you know, I was like, I think I can do
2: this. People are telling me I'm good at this. That's awesome. What was the, the first video where you were like, all right, I got something here?
1: The origin story, I think, is, is cool because it, it feels very weird and vintage in a way t- these days because the internet is very different. There used to be these things called blogs, mm. and people read them. Like, they would actually like, make lists of them, and they would actively go check them on their own by, by like clicking bookmarks and typing in URLs. It was crazy. It was a wild time. So I got onto a website called Tumblr back when that was a thing, before it was only known for porn and and, uh, (laughs) and weird literary communities. They're not weird, they're amazing. And then less porn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Less porn. I'm a millennial. And I was realizing that people around me that weren't doing science, like my real normal friends, not my fellow scientist friends, didn't engage with this stuff. You know, they were starting to turn off the television. They didn't, they didn't watch the Discovery Channel anymore. They didn't watch PBS anymore. Yeah. But they're still smart. So there was this gap of, of, of just available stuff. Like they're not reading Scientific American. They're not reading the New York Times science section. They're not reading National Geographic. So what are they doing for science? Shocker of an idea. Let's go try to put science where they already are. All of my weird meme and gif addicted friends were hanging out on Tumblr. So I'm like, let's try it over there.
2: And so this is what year approximately, just so people, you know, people who know Tumblr history?
1: Maybe 2009, 2010. 10 years ago-ish, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. To sit with that for a <laughs> second. So, you know, this was the dawn of, of social media as we know it today. You know, Facebook was still a cool and not dangerous place for the existence of humanity. Twitter was still something you could, like, text with on your phone oh yeah and uh people were trying out science on all these different places and they were uh and it, it was working so as soon as i started putting science up there and just writing short posts and doing this sort of multimedia like very heavily visual because tumblr is very visual making my own little animated gifs and little illustrations and art projects and short articles and stuff that would work there All lot people were eating it up because it was feeding into how they already did things on the internet and it exploded it was the right place at the right time and talking to people in a way that made sense to them in a place that they were already hanging out. And it became a really huge Tumblr science destination, which sounds so weird to say in 2020. And it was called what? Well, this is where we get to the origin of the name of my show, It's Okay to Be Smart, which I will acknowledge is an odd name for a YouTube show. I I like it all. I think it's great. I love it too. It was a bit of an accident because on Tumblr, you would type in just like yourname.tumblr.com. And I was just designing the page, trying to make it look cool. And I wanted to put a slogan up top. So it'd be like the first thing you'd see. And I wrote out, it's okay to be smart, because I just wanted people to know that. But then like the next day, everybody just started calling it that. And I was like, that was not my intention. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So I guess we're doing this.
2: Yeah. Once you kind of pick that handle, you're like, well, I guess this is who I am forever.
1: Yep. And here we are. And that blew up. And I think the day that I realized it was working when my boss called me in his office, the head of our lab, he pointed at this his computer screen, he's like, Is that you? And it was this Time magazine article of the biggest hottest tumblers on earth, which what an honor. My first yeah, my first media coverage. And it's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that that is me. That's me right there. I do that at home, definitely, only at night, um, and never in the lab while I'm supposed to be doing yeah. other things. And but it was it was a sign that something was working. And you know, you mentioned all these people that we know in this in the science community, and there were these real places that people used to get together, whether they were online in the early like Wild West days of Twitter or you know, on blogs, or actually at like real physical places when there was there was, actually used to be conferences and, and people would plan get-togethers where people could talk about science communications. Like totally wild. And <laughs> Everybody was experimenting with doing this stuff in a new place, like putting science online. I know like this has just got to feel so archaic even just a few years later. But this was really weird and new at the time when people started doing this. Like you could get in trouble in your department if you're a professor who had a blog.
2: Like that was a real thing. Oh, yeah. So I am a bit older than you. I don't know how old you are exactly. I'm 45. And I graduated and got my PhD in 2004 and then was a postdoc until 2012, and then got a faculty job. So I was a postdoc during this exact time you're talking about doing Story Collider, other science communication things as they arose, public talks and, and shit like that. And I was terrified all the time about my mentors, less so my advisor, because he was such a cool guy. But, the other people that I worked with who maybe weren't as forward-thinking finding out about this stuff that I did, which is not to mention also, once I started this comedy band that became now my essentially full-time career, where I dress up like a ninja and sing songs about dicks, like I was really scared for a long period of time that someone would find that and basically say, we have to fire you because you're actually making us look bad by doing this comedy stuff. I kind of evaded that because I got a faculty job in England, and they're a lot chiller about kind of the sexual morality thing. I mean, it's not like we were, you know, saying anything bad. It was just acknowledging the existence of sex. They call that taking the piss over there or something (laughs) like that? (laughs) Indeed, yes. They call it chuffing. Just the existence of being in this comedy band which dealt with, like, you know, kind of adolescent sex jokes, I was pretty sure that if I got a faculty job in the U.S., which is what I wanted, by the way, uh, not to say that my job in London wasn't awesome. I love that. Uh, I was at Queen Mary University of London. It was a wonderful place, and I would not change a single thing. But my original goal was to stay in this country. But I was terrified that if I got a job in the U.S., people would see the science communication stuff I did, and especially the comedy stuff I was doing, and basically say this is unbecoming of a faculty member at this institution, and we have to let you go immediately.
1: I mean, that will follow you—a a ninja sex joke
2: band—that's
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going on your on your headstone.
2: It is. I mean, this is you know, this is like why I do anything now. This band is still going in full swing, and that's why I left science eventually is to do the to do the band because uh, it had gotten popular enough to do it. But it was. I was terrified of uh, not only of getting fired, but also basically of students bringing it up in the classroom and then it being distracting because I'm not there to be a comedian. I'm there to do research and teach. I mean, the students at Queen Mary all knew about it. It was like uh, some kid asked me, you know, day one of being there outside of the classroom. It was not like a secret, but I was always worried it would become a distraction, which it never actually did.
1: This is so tragic. I mean, you were very lucky to be doing this in the UK because a, I don't want to turn this into like Joe and Brian's potty hour, but um, (laughs) please have such better terminology for all bathroom humor. 100%. Can I say bell end? You can say whatever you want. (laughs) I mean, that's an amazing term. Yeah. Americans could never come up with something that creative.
2: Even just wanking is great. Yeah. It's like, it's just a very elegant term. I, I love British slang. I think it's awesome. I can't say I ever really mastered the ins and outs of, no pun intended, of of all of it. But uh, it it is just something delightful about British slang and swearing. You'll never do better than uh, Peter Capaldi in The Thick of It. Have you seen this? Do you know what this is?
1: Not in The Thick of It, no. Only from Doctor Who.
2: Yeah, so before that, I mean, he's, you know, he was an older guy by the time he became the doctor, but he was, you know, a Scottish actor for, for many, many years. And he was in this amazing Armando Iannucci, basically political sitcom called The Thick of It. I think it's Malcolm Tucker is the character. You should just look up on YouTube, Malcolm Tucker swearing, The Thick of It. And it is, it's like poetry coursing forth from his mouth in a Scottish accent, just all of these, these beautifully vulgar things. It's really, really great. That's why when he was cast as the doctor, I was like, oh, hell yes. Finally, like, we're going to see this. And of course, he never quite did that, being that it's essentially a children's show, which is not a diss, but it, you know, it's a kid's show. But uh, yeah, Malcolm Tucker swearing. I can't recommend it highly enough.
1: Okay, I'm going to Google that later.
2: So, I mean, this is is like a real tragedy, though, of, of
1: scientists having to hide this part of them, because yes, like when we're talking about the fact that just raw knowledge is not maybe the most effective tool at at convincing people that they are holding onto wrong ideas or that they can do something better to keep themselves safe. We know that the the deficit model doesn't work, but what are we going to replace it with? Well, it would be great if we could replace it with three-dimensional, well-rounded yes, living human beings people. who like real things. We don't put scientists and in, in, in make them look like cyborgs who sit in labs yeah. or something. It's It's so such an obvious idea, but you know, scientific community for all of their you know next generation cutting edge thinking sometimes has been super slow to catch up to this.
2: Totally, and also like most scientists I know, I don't know what what your experience was like in biology, but my experience in theoretical physics was most of the people I knew, and I really mean like a significant majority, probably three quarters, were amazing brilliant well-rounded funny decent people and they were not weird robots we definitely had weird robots they were there also very nice people but you know you know m- maybe not as easy to talk to as some but the vast majority of theoretical physicists were super funny smart wonderful great people that i just wanted to hang out with uh, independent of of science, and I still, you know, have many many close friends who were, uh, I was in grad school or postdoc or faculty or whatever with. Was that your experience in biology? That most people were like deeply cool. Everybody was cool in a very special
1: personal way. Yeah, like there's no single definition of cool. We all know that, right? Everybody flies their their nerd flag in amazing ways. Absolutely, there's a really high correlation with people who dedicate their brains so intensely to solving single problems for years and years and years with people who are super passionate about a lot of other stuff.
2: That's right. That was generally true in physics, too. You know, the the general rule, at least, that I found actually to be true in, in science is, I hate hard science versus soft science. I think that's a terrible term. But the more mathematical the science, the kind of, shall we say, odder the people became, I, I don't know if that's actually true, but certainly there was like this hierarchy of ease in social situations that was pretty apparent between math people, theoretical physicists, and experimental physicists. And generally speaking, the math ones were the more socially awkward and then the more experimental ones were the least so. And this is a sweeping generalization that I'm I would it, it is is not entirely fair and I admit that uh, upright. So what you're
1: saying is you don't like people that know stuff that's harder <laughs> than what you know.
2: That that's correct. Yes. And I was I should say I was definitely in theoretical physics. I was very mathematical. So I was way on the oddball side of this spectrum myself. But that meant that I hung out with a lot of mathematicians who were sometimes not always more on this like That's a weird dude kind of spectrum. So I'm curious are biologists, as a general rule, like chiller at, you know, in social situations than, for example, physicists? Probably not, but that's colloquially kind of the vibe that I get.
1: As the child of mathematicians, I can tell you that I have a lot of personal experience with mathematicians. Yes, hit me. (laughs) My parents are amazing, they're applied mathematicians. Ah. Okay, there it is. So they put the weird language of numbers to actual work, not in the seventh dimension. Mm. But it is, it is true. I mean, when you meet enough people who are well-versed in the higher language of mathematics, I'm like, I went to calculus, and then I stopped because I'm a biologist. I'm like, hold on a second. Uh, I'm going to go take these other classes.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I was the opposite. I I got to the math, and I was like, more of that. Uh, Let me pause on the bio, stuff.
1: Yeah. Shortly after kindergarten, you're like, I, I I'm finished with calculus. <laughs> Can I have some more? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. People who are well versed in mathematics, I mean, they genuinely see the world in a different way. And my, yes, my dad used to try to describe yeah. how he would look at the curve of like a freeway off ramp. Mm. It was, it was almost describing the way that Neo sees the things falling in the Matrix. It's like computer language and strange characters. As yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was like he's wireframing the world. But it was very clear to me at that point, like age 14, I was like, oh, no, you know, you see the world very differently in, in a fascinating way.
2: Were your parents both academics?
1: Yeah, at times. Um, you know, my dad went in and out of, of academia, so he had to keep both sides of his brain working and, and deal with lots of different people. And, and and that's really good, too. And that's why I think sort of like the siloing of, of academics is kind of dangerous. Because yes. everybody knows if you only meet people like you and don't have to deal with, with other kinds of people, that's just a bad situation. You don't you don't get the full richness of life then. So yeah, you had to do a lot of talking with a lot of different people of different backgrounds.
2: That was something that I really noticed about the UK university system, was the siloing was extreme. I mean, it was like a challenge. Like, you know, the way people work there is you don't have a major, you just go to school for one thing, right? You're a physicist, great, you're only taking physics classes. And that's your whole university education. And that was also generally true amongst the faculty. Like I knew a couple people in math, but generally speaking, there was no opportunity to talk to people in other departments unless you really went out of your way to do it. The students weren't like taking classes back and forth. Every once in a while, someone would, but it was, it was very rare. And I know siloing is a very real thing in the US, but in the UK, it felt like it was just like, next level difficult to do this cross-subject kind of chat.
1: I keep this model of, of how science works as like an ever-expanding circle. And I'm not the only person who looks at it this way. It's so like an original thought that I came up with. But if what we know is an ever-expanding circle that keeps extending outward from total ignorance in the caves, mm-hmm. well, to push that out becomes these like single pixel activities of extremely narrow expertise, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's just a natural effect of the expansion of what we know and that you keep drilling farther and farther down into your holes to find the new stuff. Yep. It it is just a natural side effect. I mean, you are the widget master of a widget that's already seven widgets down in this universe. Yes. So you do become siloed as as like a natural uh, effect of, of how we've built science. Yes. But that's why it's the people who throughout history are the most innovative and successful and and novel, there's a clear pattern that these are people who draw ideas and inspirations and connections and, and all kinds of different things from many places of, of thought, like not just single lines of thought. I mean, like, it, it's so fascinating yeah. to people today to like Einstein played the violin and <laughs> Carl Sagan could write poetry and was one of the finest writers of our time. Yeah. Or that, I mean, I'm sure there's other weird hobbies out there. Oh um, yeah, I'm sure. Who sings? Doesn't somebody somebody's gotta be Oh, wait, you're in a band.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in yeah, I'm in a band. Uh famously Brian Cox.
1: That's it, right? yes. Was a keyboard player. The hair man. You know, it yeah. always gives it away.
2: Are uh, you thinking of Brian May or Brian Cox?
1: There's two kinds of rock and roll hair. There's Brian yes. May rock and roll hair. That's right. And there's Brian Cox rock and roll hair.
2: <laughs> That's right. There's 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 poofy and floppy.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like Journey versus Led Zeppelin.
2: Yeah, exactly. One thing I feel like with science that most people outside science don't really appreciate, and I'm gonna sound like I'm saying something negative, but I'm really not, is most scientific careers are built on, hey, I learned this trick in grad school and now I'm gonna repeat it for the rest of my life. Or maybe as a postdoc, like learned it in grad school, perfected it as a postdoc. This is the thing I do. And, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I'm just gonna point myself in different directions that kind of work out this way. And a lot of like you said, pixel research sometimes very, very good research gets done in this way. So first of all, I think people don't really understand that outside of academics, that it's a lot of people build careers on getting good at basically one tool, and then they figure out how to apply it in interesting, cool ways. Is, Is that fair for biology as well as physics? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I have strong
1: feelings about the idea of geniuses, which we can get to if you want to.
2: I would love to, absolutely. But to to go along with what you're saying, I think the the really amazing people are the people who basically find different tools. And then, you know, every, whatever, few years, they'll be like, you know what? I'm just going to throw everything out and look over here for a while. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And let's go back to James Watson.
1: Yeah. We were unfortunately talking about him earlier and he was not the first person to try this, to try to figure out the the molecular structure of DNA. Yeah, They tried and tried, and they were using various technologies to, to drill down into the microscopic world. He had to go to a particular chemist, people who were working in parallel, intersecting fields to talk to Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins and these other people who were the ones who get left out of the traditional story because they had to mash up new ideas together to create this moment of inspiration and progress. And it's because we've built up this other mythology, people have this expectation about how it's supposed to go. And that has put people on these like single monorails of
2: of, of thought, ooh, monorails, that's something people should (laughs) spend more time on, actually. Oh yeah, we should have more monorails, for sure. I mean, it was the same thing with Einstein and general relativity. Einstein had this idea and needed to talk to mathematicians to be like, hey, do you have the language to describe this? And then I can't, I can't remember who it was, Poincaré, someone, Eddington, I don't know, was like, hey, have you heard of differential geometry? And Einstein was basically like, no, what's that? Well, boom, general relativity gets invented because there's curvature structures that just exist. And an entire new thing is is born because Einstein had to learn a bunch of math, basically.
1: I don't know who he learned it from either, but I do know it was a male. That's, that's safe. Yes. Safe to guess.
2: I'm actually embarrassed that I can't remember the name of who. I can
1: hear everybody writing on Twitter, fake physicist Brian Wecht can't even.
2: Yeah, actually. Yeah, well, that is true. Fake physicist, actually. I like that description of myself. That is 100% what I am now. This name, I, I'm not embarrassed that I don't know. It's Marcel Grossman. Does it have one of those cool? The beta thing? Yeah, B-double-S. Not where I'm seeing it, but I'm sure it did, right? That's why I'm taking it with me in my heart. There's no way he didn't write it that way. Okay, Marcel Grossman. I don't know what that name is, and I'm not going to spend the time Googling it right now. I'm glad it wasn't some, like, you know, Cartan or some huge, you know, mathematician person. Yes, huge Cartan. Everyone's like, why didn't you think of Cartan? To me, Cartan's a big deal, okay? But also probably was alive. I I have no idea when any of these guys lived. Uh, Probably Cartan stuff is before that. Anyway. I'm not going to get into Cartan. But Cartan is a legit big deal uh, in, in mathematics.
1: But circling back to your like seven questions ago,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> are there fundamental differences between biologists and physicists and how they, you know, how they interact in the real world? And I mean, not every biologist actually has to go out into the real world. Like this is, the, you know, this is just like physics. There are like 17 different kinds of biologists. Why did I pick that number when it's obviously wrong? I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> there are many. And you know, some of them do have to go out and put their hands in the dirt and dig things up and chase worms and fish. Others, like me, I mean, I was the type of biologist who sat and mixed clear liquids together all day long and you know, sprayed them on petri dishes. And it's it's so wild, actually, how diverse these fields are to even group them under the, these these same headings. Sometimes,
2: yeah, to call everything biology or you know, or, or even physics or whatever, it feels like different worlds. A big thing that, and you'll know more about this than I do, so I was a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study right when they started their systems biology group there. So for people who don't know, it's very mathematical biology. Probably some people would call it more math than biology. And I remember that being like, I don't know if debate is the right word, but discussion that biologists seem to be having of like, wait, this is biology? Like, you're not doing bio; You're just, you know, doing data science or something like that. As a biologist, was that like a conversation that was going on in your department? Was that something you were super aware of? Or was that like a thing only the math people were talking about?
1: I remember the first people to come in and be like, yeah, we're, you know, we're starting this it's called systems biology. And the first truly shocking thing about it was that it would felt like you're integrating and blending all of these other little feudal states into one larger nation. Yeah, and that was like that was, that was it's like whoa 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 you have like you're gonna have a whole part of your lab that's just computers like you're putting carpet in part of your I know, lab right? That's what do you mean? You're not a real biologist. And there was some reaction like that. It was like, well, the lab upstairs has got carpet. They're not real biologists. Yeah. Um, um, but that you know that was like that was just the shock to the system that it takes to kind of shake things up because like in a you know in fact like systems systems biology is just zooming out the microscope a little bit in in, in a lot of respects.
2: Yeah, I, I know there's a number of and this is how I knew about it ex physicists doing it because they were like well we know math like we can do that. In fact, a. A friend of mine who was a, you know, doing, had a good career as a string theorist, like just switched over to bio at some point and then had this very influential paper on uh, influenza vectors that became like a big deal. And now he's a professor at Columbia Med School. Like it it seemed like an opportunity for people to throw math at biology and come up with some cool stuff. And I got to tell you, biologists don't appreciate that. Like right. There's a reason that we're <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah, who are you assholes coming in here with You know, statistics and, well, i sorry, you guys know statistics, but maybe not data science level statistics, right?
1: The best biologists outsource their statistics to statisticians.
2: That, is that true?
1: Well, I have a, a feeling about statistics is because deep opinions about so many things that I'm realizing that I hold. Statistics is one of those things that's so commonly misused and abused by people who sometimes are, purposefully using it correctly, but sometimes people are accidentally using it correctly. Like for sure. People maybe have heard of like p-value hacking or yep. um, you know, or, or the various ways that you can prove your, your data to be quote unquote significant. People who are inexperienced will oftentimes misapply the rules of statistics because they haven't taken the course. So I think, a great course of action is to go to the experts in, <laughs> in studying something like that. Because yeah. statistics is a complex field. People have studied that for years themselves.
2: It's so hard. I never really learned it. I was, a, you know, a theorist. I didn't really need it in the same way an experimentalist did. You know, I, I like took statistics classes as an undergraduate. I mean, pretty theoretical ones, but still, but I never really learned how to do it, you know, with an eye towards data.
1: Right, and and, and you just, its um it's one of those ways to correct your, Implicit bias as a scientist to make your shit work, because yeah, we talked about the pressure, right? I mean, the, the the currency of success of getting papers out has been the driving force behind so much bad science and retracted science and made up science of just this like cutthroat culture of yeah. of sink or swim science, and you know the misuse of of statistics is a side effect of that because people just get in these these situations where they'll try anything to make the results line up sometimes. And like, these are, these are like outlier cases, but they're much, yeah. they're, they're much, there are many more situations where, where people could just be very well served by talking to a, a statistician.
2: For sure. For, for us, the like, the, the weird outlier cases were the like AI generated joke papers You know, I'm sure you've seen these where it's like there's a bunch in computer science and, you know, it's the kind of thing where for-profit, you know, conferences or publications will just like put fucking anything through their doors as long as you pay them to do it. And people would always hold this up as, you know, a marker of how science is broken, which, okay, I get like these for-profit things are pretty lame, but uh, I'm not going to extrapolate from that to like the entire enterprise of science is a disaster, Uh, although it clearly has some major problems. Do you know about the Sokol hoax? Have you ever heard of this? Mm -mm. So this is a big thing in physics and philosophy, because this guy, Alan Sokol, who is a physicist, wrote a paper called The Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity, which was, like, complete nonsense from a physics point of view, and got it published in a, like, philosophy journal. And as I recall, a fairly well-known one. And this is, like, in the 80s, maybe, so a long time ago, so before kind of the modern era of publishing, and people lost their minds over this, over like, you know, oh, philosophy's bullshit, man. Like, look, it'll just put anything through. And I don't know. I think that's the wrong lesson. I, I, I have a real thing against physicists who diss philosophy. I think it's a fundamentally misguided thing. And Neil, no one is more guilty of this, by the way, than Neil deGrasse Tyson.
1: Oh, I knew you were going to bring his name up. Yeah. Wait, who's most guilty of it? Put it out there clear.
2: Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, he has said extremely dismissive things about philosophers, as have many other scientists. But, like, I, I hate that, you know, philosophy doesn't matter. To me, the, the lesson of the Sokol hoax is shit's complicated, and some stuff is going to fall through the cracks. So, like, yeah, and it was kind of done in a bad faith way, too. It doesn't mean that the entire subject of philosophy is bullshit or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can forge your way to to trickery. Yeah. Plenty of bullshit science makes its way through a system with people genuinely trying.
2: Yeah, well, 100%. One thing that is interesting to me, I don't know how how prevalent this is in bio, is for physicists, we have the preprint server, the archive, and essentially peer-reviewed articles for theoretical physicists are basically non-existent. Like, no no one I know goes to the officially published version of an article that you can just download the preprint for. So, there's this informal peer review, which has generally been pretty successful, that happens with physics. But my understanding among most of biology is that's not quite how things are happening
1: there. Is that right? Yeah, there are biology preprint journals, and some people use them, But it just goes back again to this, this cutthroat scoop culture. And when your future as a scientist can depend on, on that one make or break paper and, you know, like getting the millions of dollars that you need to survive the next three years for your lab depends on you being the person to put a single result out. And people get so protective and, and neurotic to a point where, you know, they're their homeland level obsession of, of, of like keeping their, 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 secrets. And it's, it, it gets a little bit out of control because it, it, it does take away that collaborative nature of science that has worked yeah. so well. And it's not always for the best. Like people got to take yeah. care of their, their ideas. We want these scientists to stay, you know, to stay afloat and, and keep yeah. moving forward and get the funding they need. But man, you know, this is like, we got some this is like so inside baseball.
2: No, I know. I,
1: <laughs> it's great though. Baseball is a sport that people yeah. play. Wow.
2: <laughs> the money thing is really interesting to me because in theoretical physics, there's no money. We're cheap. Like we need, you know, a computer and a chalkboard or whatever. So I was a postdoc at Harvard when I got my faculty job, and humble brag. I well look it's a place that exists that I was at okay so the point is I was at this you know big prestigious university that had a very conscious like approach towards patents and things like that and as part of my deal with my university in England I needed to basically postpone that for a year so I could be at Harvard for the you know a bit of my postdoc and then go over there but I needed to like basically have kind of a joint position for a while and so Harvard, like I had to talk to all these deans about, you know, crediting and things like that. And finally, I got up towards like some someone at the top of the food chain who was, who was the last person I needed to approve this joint position. And this guy was like, okay, so our real question is what, what happens if you invent something who gets credit for it? And I said, I'm a string theorist. And he was like, okay, no problem. You can go. <laughs> you're not gonna bend any end of story and it was just a non-issue so the stakes are much much smaller than you know CRISPR or something like that which is potentially a trillion dollar or whatever idea just waiting there
1: there's a lot of money that it takes to, to keep a you know biology labs afloat I and mean, who's gonna pay for the pipette tips that i'm yeah there's a lot of stuff that goes through there but you know these are just different fields and these are expensive things and it does cost money but just like the space program, these are things that, are, that pay for themselves, and they sound funny when you read the research proposals and you don't understand why dumb fruit flies that are, <laughs> yeah. you want to swat out of your kitchen are important to studying drug addiction. These things make sense, and it's fun to make light of them, but you know, it isn't to make like a comedy out of like these very serious and, and very necessary endeavors that people are doing.
2: Totally. So I, I'm part of this uh, pop science conference, Nexus, with the Skeptics Guide guys. And one of our speakers was this guy, David L. Who? Do you know him? He's at Georgia Tech. Yes, he does some weird shit. He does some weird shit, including like studying how animals piss and, ta- you know, like why is wombat shit cubic?
1: Yeah, I worked on a video with him about how insects walk on, on liquid.
2: Yeah, he talked about that, uh, and he also talked about how he has he, routinely made these lists for like, biggest pork barrel wastes of public funds, you know, that, who was it? I can't even remember, Ted Cruz or, you know, one someone like that. Safe bet. Yeah, safe bet. Who's the guy who brought a snowball onto the floor? Inhofe? Yeah, Inhofe, maybe, yeah. yeah. Not to name names. <laughs> Not to name names, it's, yeah. Yeah but like this guy studies the coolest stuff and it's really interesting and who knows what it's going to be useful for. By the way, he was just a delightful dude and I loved talking to him. He gave this talk and I kind of did like a post-talk interview and I just could not have been, I, I just like fell in love with this guy. I thought he was the best. Was really, really fun stuff. But uh, yeah, it's exactly what you say. You never know where this stuff is going to go. Like do weird shit, see what happens. You know, it, yeah. stuff ends up being important.
1: But this gets at the cautionary tale of genius, which I mentioned before I have some strong feelings about. Yes, please. but This is where you get pulled in two directions, because there are many amazing people like this who think, well, God, to just use another cliche, like thinking outside of the box. I'm not sure what the box is. Nobody knows. But some people think outside of it. And there are people who, whether they're writing their own mythology or others are doing it for them selectively, we just have this tendency to create great man theories and typically great man theories. Yes, indeed. And this this is not how things work, and it, it troubles me deeply. Like, I'm going to be up tonight thinking about it, probably. <laughs> because the people that we talk about who are so interesting, who are putting the ideas together that become the next great things, are the ones that are the weird polymaths. And yes the ones mashing up these crazy orthogonal fields into creating, you know, plus one makes three. And this is how it actually happens. And and sometimes people are just there at the right time. 100%. I mean, the reason that so many great scientists come out of the labs and offices of other great scientists is because they were there when important stuff was going on and they got other important ideas coming from
2: that. And somebody who doesn't have the opportunity to be there just simply isn't in that universe Oh, dude, I I owe my entire scientific career to a, just happened to be thinking about the right thing at the right time, kind of like it was an unpopular, weird thing, and we managed to find a result that had I not been at the specific place I was at the specific time, which is, you know, UC San Diego in the late 90s, I, I think I probably would not have had an academic career. You know, we got lucky, essentially. Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of
1: this. I mean, like, we wouldn't have the automobile engine if a guy who was working on perfume sprayers didn't meet up with a guy who was trying to make piston engines work better in the first, you know, moving vehicles, um, and then you get fuel injection and carburetors. Yeah. They probably met at a freaking cocktail party and, you
2: know, had one too many, and were like, like, yeah.
1: you'll never believe what I'm working <laughs> on, man. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah.
2: crazy after lab happy hour i totally 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 agree and that was my experience always in in physics it was you know some really smart people out there for sure but all the good stuff generally happens collaboratively and you know with an element of luck yeah
1: and we see it all over twitter today there are again not going to name names but there are the exalted gods of innovation that um have created their own stories and. Mm, I I wonder who you could be talking about. (laughs) You know, they might depend on, they are intelligent and driven innovators who take risks and use resources in amazing ways to tackle really huge, hairy problems, but they are not magical people. No. And they are doing things um, built on the backs of thousands of other smart people, and there's nothing um, sort of mythological about them. And when we put them up too high, that's why it feels so bad if, if, if someone gets knocked down.
2: Yeah. Or, or they start saying, I've got your back, Kanye, or whatever. Then you're like, all right, well, maybe he's just a guy. You know, Don't
1: vape and tweet, folks.
2: That's the, that's the moral <laughs> of the story. I think this is a good time to move on to one of the very few actual segments we have on the podcast. Generally, it's just... Chatting about whatever until we get to this point, and this point is the pop culture recommendation section. It's called "What's Poppin." It has a theme song, which I will play for the people at home, but you will not be able to hear.
0: What's poppin?
1: What's poppin? I heard it in my head,
2: and oh, and and what did you think? You know, it's it's um, it, I honestly didn't like it. Like if I could just. I think you'd have the same opinion if you heard it in person. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you what's popping and you can recommend some pop culture thing. can be anything. So, Johansson, what's popping?
1: I'm doing a little bit of reading. Well, reading these days means listening because it's it's on my quarantine grocery trips and when I'm walking the, the baby around the neighborhood. Yeah, um, I'm really lucky to call a guy named Hank Green a friend and professional collaborator. He's the best, yeah. Huge YouTuber. It's just so many amazing projects. Uh, He's just a digital entrepreneur. Yeah. But he pisses me off because he's such a great writer, too. And he has two books out um, that I've just gobbled up in the past few weeks.
2: Dude, I've been meaning to get to, what's the first one, Uh, Beautiful an absolutely remarkable thing. Absolutely remarkable thing. That's been on my shelf to read for a very long time now because I love that dude. I think he's amazing and I've been very eager to read it and just haven't like gotten to it yet. But it it's it's incredible, huh?
1: Yeah, it's it and he just came out the sequel. Right, right. A beautifully foolish endeavor. It's spoilers galore to even try to talk about what these these books are about, but something weird and possibly extraterrestrial shows up and then the internet happens to it and <laughs> happens to people and it is the most just current and human science fiction and and emotional science fiction story i've encountered i just like hank god damn it man why are you so good at stuff
2: be worse at one thing
1: yeah seriously yeah
2: i think it's technically
1: young adult but it's, it's just so great. Like, I, I hate that things have to be labeled that way, and I, I hope that people will check that out. I love both of them. They're great. Rich stories, and the characters are rich and feel very now, and like, feel like actual hmm. kaleidoscopes of, of humans. They have just so many edges and so many colors to them. They're, they're so anti-trope. It's great. I awesome. can't recommend them enough.
2: Hank is also one of the people where I'm like, that's how you use Twitter. That right there. I I love the way his social media presence, specifically Twitter, works.
1: Do you have those people where you like like and want to retweet almost too much of their stuff and you feel like you're going to look a little weird? Yes. Like Hank definitely gets to that point.
2: Ed Yong is that for me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I can't retweet every single thing Ed posts. Like I got to like dial it back a little bit, but everything that guy Posts or indeed writes because he's a brilliant writer is is the same thing. So th- for me, it's it's Ed. Like okay, I got to dial back on the Ed retweets because it's 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 seeming a little thirsty.
1: It's almost cliche for people who do science writing to just be like, oh Ed, we love you, but Ed, we love you. you you're great. <laughs> Um, so that's what I've been reading and, and listening to. Uh, the, it's fantastic. And it is a great audiobook. Like People prefer to get their books that way. It's just not every audiobook is a great production, but this one is. Does he read it? Uh, he does have a little part in the in, in each of them, but particularly the second. Cool. Uh, this is, I mean, I'm not the first person to catch up to this, but uh, Schitt's Creek is, oh. is great. Yes, it is great. Everyone knows this. I've been having this problem with trying to tell other people about Schitt's Creek, where you have to do the thing where you're like, give it time. Yes. I hate to say that about stuff. But it's true. It is 100% true. Because you're like, "Why, why couldn't it just be good from the beginning? If it was truly great, wouldn't it be great from the beginning? But I think because of what the show represents and what you're watching the characters do, I do think you have to be with them uncomfortably for a while before the whole show pays off.
2: Yeah, completely. It, it's true. Season one is a slow burn. Still great stuff, but then it really gets moving. I love so many of the people in it before Schitt's Creek, Eugene Levy, uh, Catherine O'Hara.
1: I mean, Chris Elliott. Like, it, it's oh, so dude, incredible.
2: I, I, I could spend all day just watching Chris Elliott on old Letterman videos on YouTube. Absolutely one of my comedic heroes. I love him so much. We can watch Cabin Boy together sometime. Oh, I love it. Do you like Cabin Boy? I love uh, Cabin it's Boy. It's
1: definitely a guilty pleasure. Nostalgically college-based f- for a lot of it, but...
2: <laughs> yeah. it's There's so much great stuff. I remember when that came out, and it was like David Letterman in his first film role. And he's on screen for, right, for what, a minute or something. I love Chris Elliott. Get a Life was a big thing for me uh, in high school, actually. I really like Get a Life. I don't know
1: how I would have encountered this, because I'm, I'm not old enough to have watched sctv when it was like on on yeah me neither really somehow like i'm aware of people like eugene levy when his hair matched his eyebrows and it's uh-huh. like, <laughs> it's it's like the kevin's mom from home alone yep catherine o'hara yeah is no wacko i mean it's it's yeah. crazy to see these things come full circle that's me
2: trying to act young <laughs> <laughs> she is just amazing I, I i i am such a catherine o'hara fan i think she's incredible
1: yeah, so I have a tradition in our house now that I try to, I alternately do David and Alexis impressions in my life. <laughs> that's, that's
2: great. Uh, Ale- Annie Murphy as Alexis is, I, 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 that is an incredible comedic performance. I mean, she is just astonishing in that role. I really, really love her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have no theater training and, you know, I'm a self-taught, amazing YouTube host. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the detail to which these people just like hold their bodies and move to become these characters Yeah. do the smallest eye twitches of simply having had too much in that moment. Like, it's it's genius. Can't say enough good things about that.
2: Yeah. Cool. Uh, Brian, what's popping? Well, since I asked myself. I, I've also been doing a lot of reading uh, during uh, pandemic. And I, I'm hesitant to call this a recommendation, but I'm going to talk about something I'm reading. Probably about a year ago, I bought the entire USA trilogy by John Dos Passos. And he's one of these guys who was like, you know, a very heralded writer in the mid-20th century. And now I feel like no one ever talks about him. So I'm always curious with these guys is, is it like, does it not hold up or is it just something that we kind of moved on from? So the USA Trilogy, it's three books. The one I'm on right now is the second one, 1919, which I wanted to read now because it's 100 years ago. Um, and it's basically about World War One. It's all these little like slice of life mm. stories to me, absolutely does not hold up. It is like, it's got these sections which are clearly trying to be avant-garde, Ah, uh, called the Camera Eye, which is like almost like an E. Cummings-esque, you know, stream of con call it e. e. Cummings. That's not even fair. It's just like stream of consciousness. These other sections, which are literally, he's just typing like headlines from newspapers.
1: You can throw William Faulkner under the bus too, if you want to. I mean, it's like-
2: sure. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of Faulknerian, but Faulkner, I like. Th- this is like I just don't understand the point. Then he has these like character pieces, which are actually the good parts, although. Not I can't even imagine at the time was anything less than super racist. Like, there's a bunch of really questionable, not even questionable, just abhorrent stuff that these people do. And these were written in, like, the 30s. So if you're saying yeah, it's got to be super, super
1: racist if it was already super racist for the time.
2: I think so. I mean, he clearly knows that to some extent, but, you know, there's, like, there's trigger warnings everywhere, like, on this thing. You know, it, it's like dropping n-bombs and just saying horrible, demeaning stuff. I mean, there it is, definitely racist, but it's also like xenophobic, just generally speaking. I guess some of it is character-based. It's all character-based, but I don't know. Given the fact that Dos Passos became a super conservative later in life doesn't really make me think that he didn't believe this stuff. But it's interesting to me to you know to read these books from almost 100 years ago, about events from 100 years ago, and i'm in that thing now where i'm literally halfway through the whatever it is 900 pages of the full trilogy and i feel like i have to finish it because i've gotten this far
1: you're deep in the sunk costs and you're just oh. like i'm not going to have a, squandered so much time
2: i know that's a dumb way to think i know it's a classic fallacy but i just i have to do it and it's it's such a slog there are parts that are great there are parts where the writing is really really compelling but
1: well hey lots of people finished Ayn Rand books for the same reason.
2: Oh, never. I'm never <laughs> going to read an Ayn Rand book. I Like, you couldn't pay me to read one of those. I just do not care. Uh, have you ever read any?
1: I've read some, and then I put them down very quickly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite, favorite Ayn Rand thing was when they made the first of the Atlas Shrugged movies, and it bombed at the box office. There was an A.V. Club headline that said, Free Market Rejects Ayn Rand Movie.
1: Yeah, it's almost too perfect.
2: I thought was pretty great. Yeah, so USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos. I can't actually recommend it, but if anyone wants to experience it along with me, or if anyone's read it and can defend it as being good, I would be very interested in, in hearing that because you know, it just seems like the kind of thing that people used to talk about but don't anymore.
1: But it's so interesting to see the things that were like exalted as great. That- yes haven't haven't stood the test of time because you always hear the story of the thing that stood the test of time. And what is it about the thing that suddenly fades from consciousness because it just doesn't make any sense anymore?
2: yeah, and that that's that's a big like i would you would think with like avant-garde writing from w- whatever period of time that it would be kind of more understandable now because we're more used to it. You know, none of this stuff seems as astonishing as it did when it first came out, you know. You no know, I'm, I'm I'm not a stupid person like I can understand the words that are being put in front of me but it's just that thing where I cannot focus on anything this dude is saying and uh, I I would think it should be easier but it's uh, at least for me I I am not getting some of the weirder stuff happening so it, it would be interesting to look at like English class curricula from I don't know the 70s let's say 50 years ago mm-hmm. and just see what they were like you know they were assigning as classics and how many of them still exist
1: right and uh, uh, yeah exactly i mean it's funny that we still the classics of today are i mean not 100% overlapping but many of them are not different from the classics that like my parents were reading totally mark twain is still on the list still on the list um, and, for great yeah. reasons uh, but but the i think those truly great works like just to use mark twain as an example is he was able, um, purposely or accidentally, to tap into experiences and commentary that could be reinterpreted in different times and have unique value in those times. And that's yes. that's the secret sauce, right? That's the of literature. Yep, 100%. You know, as much as I hate reading Charles Dickens, like, he was able to do that, too. <laughs> and the people who are great are, are able to kind of tap into that versus
2: being a you know, zeitgeist works, but... yeah somebody reinterpreted. So something else, not to get too far down this uh, rabbit hole. A couple
1: scientists talking about literature. This is what people tune in for.
2: I I did read for the first time a couple of years ago, Pale Fire by Nabokov. And that book, I was just like, this is the best thing ever. Just, I, I could not put it down. I thought it was so just beautiful and well done and interesting. I mean, Nabokov being, you know, famous for being beautiful and interesting. And you have to look up 20 words on every page, but like, it was interesting to have a fairly recent thing in my mind where I'm like, okay, that's a classic, not from quite as long ago as uh, USA, but 100% holds up and is every bit as compelling, I would imagine, now as it was back whenever it was written in the, I don't know, 60s or something. And
1: you know what his secret was?
2: Was he was a big science
1: nerd. Nabokov was a lepidopterist. Yep. He was a butterfly collector and I personally attune much of his success directly to his love of butterflies.
2: I think that's fair. He certainly talks about him enough. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, you know, he, he's just incredible. And the fact that, you know, it's like, okay, well, now I have to look up this Russian phrase. Now I have to look up this French thing. Now I have to look up this English word, which he was not a native speaker of, but certainly knows more words than I do. It's pretty intimidating to read those books. Right after that, I read Ada or Ada or "arder." or I guess if you pronounce it in British, it's Ada or Ada, or however you're mm-hmm. supposed to say that. I think it's supposed to rhyme, basically. And that was a much tougher slog because it's also like a parody of every 20th century novel, which I don't think I knew enough to <laughs> to really grok. Like, it starts out as clearly an Anna Karenina thing, and then it, I'm sure it went a million other places where had I known literature, specifically Russian literature, better, I would have been more into it. But that one was a, was a tougher slog.
1: One of my favorite things about Nabokov ever, uh, is he... You should Google this. There's a page that surfaced of his personal copy of The Metamorphosis by Kafka. Oh, really? And he was, like, as a person who knows about insects, trying to figure out what the hell he turned into.
2: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: It's it's very, very cool.
2: I love it. All right, final segment. This is uh, the only other segment. It's called Peaches and Lemons. So this is something that my... Dearly missed co-host Layton. I'll just say it ripped off from her family, uh, where they do a little gratitude exercise and they say one lemon, which is a kind of bad thing going on, and three peaches, which are just things you're grateful for. So here's the theme song for that right now.
0: Peaches
1: Peaches and lemons. I like that one a lot better.
2: Oh, good. I'm glad. No lemons, because life is kind of a big lemon right now. So we're not saying any negative shit.
1: Yes. Our mouths and our butts are all puckered.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we can take that as uh, granted that there's enough bad stuff going on right now, but we're just going to share three good things uh, going on. So I'm happy to go first, but if you'd like to, Joe, you are more than welcome to as well.
1: Well, if you're happy to go first, go first and it all go okay.
2: last. Okay. Great, I will do it. Number one, first speech. I went to the uh, the doctor today to get my retinas checked. I have severe myopia, like minus sixteen in both eyes. Wow, that's a large number. Yeah, it, it's 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 pretty messed
1: up. I'm fairly famous for wearing glasses, and just for reference, and I'm like minus one and a half.
2: Oh my god! I, <laughs> if only. I, I literally think I was minus one and a half when I was like five, and it's only been worse from there. But my retinas look great. So that's good to know, because I've been told for years, like, get ready, dude. (laughs) You're at severe risk of something tearing or whatever. Uh, Hopefully that'll never happen. It's definitely not a sure thing, but at least for another year, my retinas have survived. So that's good. The second peach is, this is not going to start out sounding like a peach, but it really is. A father of a friend uh, who had been struggling with Alzheimer's died a couple weeks ago. And I'd met this guy several times, and he was just a really beautiful, wonderfully smart, funny, deeply educated dude. His name is John Toms. Uh, he was a Columbia Teachers College and in various other things in, in New York. And his memorial service via Zoom was on Sunday. And Rachel, my wife, and I attended along with like 200 other people. And it was this beautiful celebration of this really wonderful man's life. And there was singing, and people read stuff they they had written, old college friends. By the way, it was also a great collection of aging New York intellectuals, which was just, I mean...
1: (laughs) What a bunch, yeah.
2: The hair on display. Oh my God. You know, it's like an army of Fran Leibovitzes. It was so great.
1: Everyone's competing with like what kind of modern art they've got in the background of their Zoom.
2: A hundred percent. It was so great, and one guy was talking about how when they were in grad school together for English, they, like, unearthed this never, like, rarely produced John Donne play and mounted a production of it, and it was like a whole thing. High
1: on LSD, of course, because Tim came over and he brought some stamps.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was a really fun like story of this very hard-ass like paper chase style professor who was enraptured by their production of, I can't even remember what the name of this thing was, like a Pyramus and Thisbe style or something. I don't even know. But it was a really beautiful experience. It went on for two and a half hours and every minute of it was like, this rules. This guy was amazing. And what a way to celebrate his life. My final peach is just that we got started on a new album this week and went into a recording studio. Before anyone talks about this, everyone was tested and tested negative before we got in the studio. So that was like a very important thing to me. I wouldn't do it without uh, actually doing tests. But we were able to record in the studio that Prince used to record Purple Rain 1999 and a bunch of other albums from the 80s and we got to use his board like his console wow and it was like just this magical room people like the albums that have been produced at this place at sunset sound in in hollywood are just incredible like zeppelin four was recorded in part not in that room in a different room elton john van halen all this like you know
1: god you know man in a universe between two people who have a very naturalistic humanistic view of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> but then you walk into a space like that and there is something really, really special yeah. uh, about being, and it's, it's really, really tough to put your finger
2: on. It challenges a lot of your assumptions about the world. Totally. But it, you feel like you're part of a tradition, right? There also is a very material thing you can put your at least your ear on, which is the room sounds dope. Like, the console sounds amazing. So there's a reason... Prince loved it is because you get great sounds out of it, which is not just true in any recording studio. So you can actually listen to the stuff you're doing and think, oh yeah, that's, that's it. But you're also right that even independent of the actual, you know, wave files we got at the end of it, for me, it was like, there's a, there's a bathroom right there in this little part of the, of the studio. And I'm like, that was Prince's toilet right there. Prince definitely took a dump in that toilet. Prince doesn't take dumps. He didn't no. take dumps. No, <laughs> That's no. the other thing is, you know, his body just magically floats stuff away.
1: I tinkled. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, it, it really, it was an honor to, to be there. And it was just a joy to be in the presence of other people. You know, it's not risk-free. Nothing is. But we felt like we were as safe as we could have possibly been about it. I'm reluctant to honestly even talk about it because I don't want to encourage people to get together indoors. Yeah, i think we all know by now don't fucking do it but we did it in a, a safe and responsible way otherwise we wouldn't have done it so it was nice to see people for a bit too
1: it's amazing that uh, um that this is it sort of reconnected us to just the most basic ingredients of happiness and satisfaction of just like humans yes I'm I'm just happy I remember how to talk to people that we've been able to converse for this long. I've been genuinely worried that I'm going to like, forget what <laughs> it's know, like right. to interact with another living creature that isn't my family. Yeah, Joe, what are your peaches? I mean, this first one it was really hard to keep it out of pop culture, but it has just genuinely been such a gem. There's a YouTube channel that I and many other people found in the past few weeks. These two twins. Oh, dude, yes, that live in Indiana. Twins, the new trend, I believe, is their YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. They're two black teens. They're in their early 20s who grew up listening to only hip hop their entire lives. And through some string of challenges or events, you know, there's a big reaction video culture on YouTube. And, and, and they decided yes. to go and do reaction videos to music they'd never listened to before. And they have just the most genuinely, purely happy and amazing reactions to songs that you know like many of us who listen to music a lot have heard hundreds maybe thousands of times and uh like they listened to dolly parton singing jolene yeah i saw that one too i watched that one too yeah and they are like they are stopping this vid- this this song and like leaning back like screaming like damn jolene and taking apart the story like they don't they don't know who Dolly Parton is or what she looks like or where she comes from or what she represents and they're experiencing this for the first time and when you watch them you like I was re-experiencing these things for the first time it is just the most pure thing that I have found on the internet and they have hundreds of videos they put out like 10 videos a day of them listening to music and so many of them are good uh they listen to like they listen to the Everly Brothers Oh, really? And it's like, wow. And you're like, you thought it was the dumb song from, from ghost. And all of a sudden you lean back and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like to hear it through, I don't want to say like the eyes of a child, but like these are, these are adults. <laughs> they're not children, but you know, that purity is there of like the way that like, I feel like I'm like, my toddler is experiencing something for the first time. It's just so, so cool.
2: And they, they have a really natural chemistry together and they're just, yeah, full of joy and really fun together.
1: Yeah. It's so great. Um, you'll, be in a rabbit hole of pure happiness there. (laughs) I just gotta say garbage trucks. Garbage trucks are amazing. I've I've got an almost three year old. Pretty great. And become very aware of how much we rely on these anchors of routine in our life right now to sort of just orient ourselves around. Like we need something to orbit around as humans in our routines and our schedules to just, to feel normal. And maybe that can teach us all something about how to live better in the future. But when every day is essentially the same and you're waking up, you're you're trying to get through the day with with little kids around and and trying to keep them going in their life and trying to get your work done. And like, what is a Saturday? What is a Wednesday? Uh, Well, I'll tell you what Wednesday is. Wednesday is the day that the trash trucks come (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's when we hear the air brakes go off down the block that the entire family runs to the curb so that my son can wave the garbage trucks. And wow. we've seen this all over the internet. Like it's the same adorable experiences, but it is. Like it's just become this genuinely amazing thing of uh, that we can sort of orient the week around. We're recording this on a Tuesday, uh, sometime in the universe, and the trash cans are out for tomorrow. We get to do it.
2: Hey, that's our trash day too, so... We're we're right there with you. Same day, closely closely followed in second place there
1: by any time an Amazon truck <laughs> pulls up. But they're not they're not as cool as garbage trucks. No,
2: they don't have a thing that picks up cans. Come on.
1: So yeah, there's a theme here, right? Yeah, seeing things purely through the eyes of a child.
2: Oh yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, when you're and when you're forced to to live under the roof with this small developing human who's interrupting your supposed quote unquote work day every seven minutes. Uh, it's, you know, you get to experience a lot of these things. That has been a good, beautiful blessing out of this, but I'm not going to use it as one of my peaches because the third peach is a new project that I'm working on. It's a big, huge project and it's, it sucks because I can't really say too much about what I'm working on, but I'm, I'm collaborating with um, a great podcaster and a great, great, like legendary level creator and communicator on something that we hope is going to be a big effing deal. And, um, awesome. We're, we're getting real close to people, hopefully telling us that we can make it.
2: When can you say ish when you expect it to come out?
1: Other people would get to see it in like a year or two because it involves making like a big thing. It would be like a show. But, oh, wow. Cool. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like a thing we've been working behind the scenes to create a really great idea and, and put some really cool ideas together. And, and people who have worked in media and, and you know, have tried to plan big projects, you know, it's like, this was this is a lot of the hard work and before you get into turning things on and doing a lot of editing and stuff like this. But we're, we're yeah, for sure. We're at this point where like people we're 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 done and people are gonna tell us they like it, hopefully, and, and we get to make it and that's so exciting. It's it's been great. It's one of those things you get to wake up and be really excited to work on.
2: That's awesome, dude. Joe, thank you so much for being here with me. This was a lot of fun. I see why Liz Neely was like, You guys should talk, because this was awesome. I had a great time. I had a great time too.
1: I can see why Liz is friends with you too.
2: (laughs) Where can people find you?
1: You can find me on YouTube. Uh, Just search It's Okay to Be Smart. Hundreds of mostly interesting and hilarious videos they are waiting to teach you something. You (laughs) can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Joe Hanson, like the band.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. I am very curious what reactions are going to be to this latentless episode. So let me know. I'm sure this won't be the last time. It's a one host uh thing so hopefully people uh people do not miss like i mean i miss her dearly of course but hopefully you thought this was okay i had a great time thank you joe for joining me thank you everybody for for listening and this is the end of the podcast goodbye awesome late night is produced by brian wecht Layton gray and jarek Santeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at Night at gmail.com.